Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Amen. Good morning, church. We're in week number two of our new series through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So in light of that, I want to invite you all to open your Bibles for the reading of Scripture as we customarily do. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Church, hear now the words of the one living and true God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, church? When I was... uh, an undergraduate student at Long Beach State, one of my major courses of study was computer science. And as part of the requirements of fulfilling that course of study, I had to take lots of math. How many people love math here? How many people are like, boo, math? Oh, man, a lot of boo, math people. So I had to take all this math, semesters and semesters of calculus, and then several math classes after I took all my calculus. And I'll never forget I had this one class Calculus-based probability and statistics. And the, yeah, ugh. and the exams for this class were particularly brutal. Uh, the professor on our exams for that class would essentially give us one math problem. One math problem for the whole exam. And that math problem might be broken into like four component parts. And here was the deal. If you didn't apply calculus correctly and get the very first part of that math problem right, Guess what would happen to the rest of the parts of that exam? Yeah, cascading failure. You would get all the subsequent parts of that exam wrong. And at the end, your only hope would to be like casting yourself on the mercies of partial credit. So my point is, if you got something wrong, if you got a base calculation wrong, then everything that followed from that you would also get wrong. The same kind of thing is going on with Paul and Corinth in this passage. In this passage, he's beginning to address the various problems and sins that they're dealing with in that church. And the first problem that Paul addresses with them is the problem of unity or their lack of unity. And what he's doing in this passage is he's essentially showing that unity is not their base problem. Rather, they've got their base calculations wrong. They've gotten the gospel wrong. And because they've gotten the gospel wrong, that's cascaded into failing in their unity, they've gotten their unity wrong. And so Paul opens this passage with an appeal for unity. Look with me at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So this appeal, this exhortation, it begins the body of this letter. Last weekend, Pastor Andrew preached to us out of the introduction of the letter. The letter has an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And this exhortation, this appeal represents the very beginning of the body of this letter. And it announces Paul's primary concern. You see, it's come to Paul's attention that the unity of the Corinthian church family is deteriorated. Now, I just want to point something out. Before we look at the substance of Paul's appeal here, I want us to note how he introduces his appeal. Now, if we think about this letter to the Corinthians, um, in it, Paul deals with a long list of sins and dysfunction. Some of those sins are particularly grievous. Um, And it seems like, in light of all those things, Paul would be really justified to open this letter very upset. We wouldn't hold it against him if he seemed upset with them as he opens the body um, of of his letter. But rather than opening it upset, we see that he begins to address these Christians um, not as people he's looking down on, not as people that he's just angry with, but as his spiritual siblings. Um, He says, I appeal to you brothers or brothers and sisters. And who is Paul? Paul is a man who was converted and commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus himself. And when he was commissioned, the Lord Jesus conferred on him a very special, a very unique authority in the early church, an apostolic authority. But Paul doesn't wield his authority in a condescending manner in this, in this introduction. Rather, we see that he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, speaking to them as a spiritual sibling, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he addresses them as someone who is himself likewise under the same authority of Jesus. One of the things I love about this is that it's profoundly pastoral on Paul's part. And it shows us, it encourages us, because we're not a perfect church either, that Paul has a heart and a concern for these people. He has a love for these people because first and foremost, God has a love for these people. Amen? So what is the substance of his opening plea? He says, I appeal to you that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And so first, Paul calls them to agree. Literally, what he says is, I would like for all of you to speak the same, to not be talking differently, but to be talking the same. I would like for you to be allies, not adversaries. And the second thing he says, he expresses his desire that there be no divisions among them, uh, that there be no schisms, that there be no splits. Um, What Paul is saying is is that the local church, um, that local church, and by extension our local church, must not divide itself into competing groups or factions that compete or war against each other. He's saying, I want you to all take the same side. But finally, he says, I want you to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. And the word that Paul uses here that's translated united literally means to be refurbished, to be repaired, to be restored. He says, I want you, I want you all together to be refurbished, to be restored to the same mind and to the same judgment. He wants them to be restored to a common Christian 
attitude, that they would all behave harmoniously together, that they would not be pitted against one another, and that together in one accord they would all exemplify the mind of Christ. So Paul opens with this threefold plea for restored, for refurbished unity in their church. Now I want us to zoom out for just a second and contextualize this plea within the context of the whole letter. In this whole letter, Paul is going to address all kinds of sins and problems and errors and dysfunction. He's going to not just address divisions, he's going to address sexual sin, some of it particularly grievous, lawsuits, tensions between those who are perceived as strong versus those who are perceived as weak. He's going to address a sense of indifference to the poor, attitudes of superiority regarding spiritual gifts, and the list goes on and on. And in light of all that, it's striking that Paul begins by addressing unity. So he begins this letter, a letter which addresses a vast multitude of sins. And he doesn't begin with those sins. He begins with this one. He begins with unity. And I think that that reveals, not just for them, but for us, the primacy of place that unity ought to have in every local body of believers. Does that make sense? Now consider how Paul emphasizes unity in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, um, I want you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so unity is, is a big matter. It's a big concern. It's a massive priority, not just for that local church in Corinth, not just for the church in Ephesus, but also for our church today. Now, Paul is far from being done addressing unity. He's going to be addressing unity for the next four chapters of this letter. But now he's going to turn his attention to address immediately the, the essential obstacle to their unity. So look with me at verses 11 through 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So we don't know too much about this person, Chloe. We know that she was um, a converted Christian. Uh, we can infer that she probably lived in Corinth or in Ephesus. She probably had become successful and had a reasonable amount of influence. Um, she likely had associates either in Ephesus or in Corinth or in both. But the bottom line is some of her associates brought this report back to Paul. Um, and what do they give Paul word of? That the church in Corinth is characterized by parties, by factions, and each party or faction is essentially dropping a name. Uh, some of them are saying, oh, I follow Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And then still others are saying, I follow Christ. In order for us to kind of really appreciate what's going on, I think that it's helpful for us to revisit uh, the timeline of the Corinthian church. Now, how many of us remember our teaching series over the last couple of years through the book of Acts? Yeah, you better remember. <clears throat> we worked very hard on that series. So, remember back to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, the very beginning, we see that Paul leaves Athens and Paul uh, heads into Corinth. And as he goes into Corinth, he teaches in the synagogue, and, and he contends with the Jews, and they push against him, and then he wipes his hands of the Jewish people, he goes to the Gentiles, and he preaches the gospel to them. But the bottom line is, Paul labors for a year and a half in Corinth, 
Um, and by the grace of God, he is able to preach the gospel. People hear, they're saved, they're converted. A church is founded, and he pastors them. And when they reach a certain level of maturity, Paul moves on from Corinth, and he continues kind of being his pioneer missionary church planting self. But as Paul leaves Corinth, we're introduced at the end of Acts chapter 18 to this man named Apollos, whose name is also being dropped in this report that Paul receives about the Corinthians. So I just want to read to you very quickly how we're introduced to Apollos in Acts chapter 18. Let's, let's re-familiarize ourselves with this man. So Luke tells us this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So that's at the end of Acts chapter 18. The very next chapter, Acts chapter 19, the very first thing that we read is this same Apollos visits Corinth and ministers to the Corinthian church. So as we look at this letter, we see what's going on in Corinth. What do we know? We know that they knew Apollos. He had visited them. Now as we think about their words, how they're dropping all these different names, I want us just to briefly summarize what we know about the names that they're dropping. What do we know about Paul? We know that Paul was from Tarsus, and Tarsus was a center of trade and academics. It had a prolific university uh, in the ancient world. We know that Paul was highly educated, not just in that he was from Tarsus, but that he was sent to Jerusalem by his dad, who was also a Pharisee. He was sent by his dad as a young man to Jerusalem to be trained by Gamaliel in the law. And so he had elite scribal training as a Pharisee, as a Jewish man. Uh, Paul founded the church at Corinth. He's the guy that went there, preached the gospel, and by the grace of God was used to start it all. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's a legit dude. Are you with me? What do we know about Apollos? Apollos was a native of Alexandria in Egypt, and Alexandria was an intellectual and cultural epicenter in the ancient world. It was second only to Rome itself. Uh, Alexandria was a prolific place. We know that Apollos was a Jewish man. We're told that he was an eloquent man, that he was competent in the scriptures. We're told that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. What does that mean? That means that Apollos was skilled in open public debate and in rhetoric and persuasion in intellectual combat. We're told that Apollos showed by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So not only was this man op skilled in open public debate, but he was also skilled in handling the word of God. As we consider church history and tradition, some scholars actually speculate that Apollos is the author to the letter of the Hebrews in our Bible today because the Greek is so elevated and sophisticated, characteristic of one who would have been educated in a place like Alexandria. What's the point? 
Apollos was a pretty impressive dude. He was flexing some impressive credentials. What do we know about Cephas? Who is Cephas? Peter, right? That's the Aramaic of Peter. Well, we know that Peter walked with Christ, that he ministered with him, that he was witness to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that Peter preached the first gospel sermon uh, at Pentecost. What followed as a consequence, mass conversion in Jerusalem, the first church founded. We don't have any evidence that Peter visited Corinth, but certainly his reputation preceded him. But for our purposes, Peter is kind of like the OG apostle, right? Now, what do we know about the cultural background of Corinth? So I want you to kind of hold, hold uh, what we know about those men in your minds. And I want us to just like radically focus for a second and think about what we know about the cultural background of Corinth. Remember Pastor Andrew uh, instructed us last weekend that it was originally a Greek city, that it was destroyed by the Romans. It was razed to the ground in 146 B.C., but then 100 years later, in, in 44 B.C., it was rebuilt um, as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar himself. And since the time that it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar, and these events happen, about 100 years pass. And Corinth, having been rebuilt as a Roman colony, took great pride in not just its Roman, but also its Greek heritage. It celebrated its Roman style, the architecture of its buildings. Uh, it celebrated its Roman uh, culture, its special links to the capital of the Roman Empire, Rome itself. But it also drew heavily, culturally speaking, on its Greek intellectual heritage. And one feature of public intellectual life in Corinth um, involved a fresh new movement of a centuries-old Greek school of philosophers uh, called the Sophists. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. And this group of philosophers, the Sophists, get their name from that word, Sophia, wisdom, the Sophists. And so who were these men? Well, they would travel from city to city in the ancient world, and they would put on very impressive, compelling public displays of oratory and rhetorical skill. They were extremely impressive and persuasive speakers and philosophers. They were masters of intellectual combat. And so what would happen in Corinth is that these various teachers would come to Corinth, the whole city would turn out to hear them speak and wax eloquent and engage in public sophistry and sophisticated public speaking and to listen to them trade in the market of ideas and in the market of human wisdom. Now, here's the key point. As these sophists traveled around the ancient world, uh, they would not just show up and have lots of people turn out for them, but they would also make disciples of themselves. And so the followers that they would accumulate would often divide themselves into groups and battle against each other to argue for which one of their teachers was the greatest. Things beginning to become clear about what's going on in Corinth. What's most likely going on between these factions that Paul is hearing about in Corinth? Well, you have some people saying, oh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I follow Paul. I mean, Paul's from Tarsus. I mean, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he came in here, he started this whole thing up here at Corinth. And you have other people saying, Psh, Paul, Tarsus. I follow Apollos. He's from Alexandria. I mean, he came here too. Um, that guy is uh, the, the most epic debater that we've ever seen. 
And you have other people saying, Apollos, Paul, whatever. I, I follow Cephas. That guy's the OG. I mean, he started all in, in Jerusalem. I mean, he's the rock, right? And then, of course, you have the group of purists who are like, whatever. I follow Christ. Can we got to kind of get a sense of what's going on with these people in this church? So Paul gets this report. And in light of what we know about the culture and who these men were, he, he realizes that the Christians in Corinth have begun to treat he and Apollos and Peter and most tragically even Jesus himself like nothing more than just a bunch of traveling teachers to be pitted against one another like these philosophers. And to do so was for them to misplace the whole point of the gospel. And Paul's going to have none of that. Now, I want us to be clear, kind of having said all that, that uh, this specific situation that Paul is dealing with was not a matter of uh, divisions over doctrine, uh, different theological positions between Paul, Apollos, Peter, or certainly um, of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, if we just look two chapters ahead in 1 Corinthians, Paul revisits this very issue, um, and, and he says to the Corinthians, he says, look, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Does it sound like Paul thinks they're on the same team? They're on the same team. I love what Paul says in chapter 15. If we fast forward all the way to chapter 15, verse 11, he talks about uh, Peter, Cephas. He talks about the 12. He talks about Jesus appearing to 500 brothers, to James, to the apostles, and then to last of all, one as though untimely born, he appeared also to me. And, and Paul eventually says, but whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So Paul's very clear throughout the letter and his other letters, the Bible's very clear, that all these men were heralding the same true gospel. So this is not a matter of one person rolling into town preaching a false gospel, the other person rolling into town uh, and preaching a true gospel, and then the group's being divided over which one is false and which one is being true. Rather, what this is a case of is men identifying with men, men in the church, people in the church saying, I follow that person, and thereby being guilty of misplacing, misinvesting their identity in men and not in their Messiah. So the obstacle to the unity that they face emerges from the fact that they have magnified messengers and they've misunderstood the gospel message, that they have prioritized style over substance, that they're looking for power in all of the wrong places. Are you with me? So what is Paul's solution? His solution is for them to get back to the gospel, and as they get back to the gospel, to get the gospel right. Paul's solution is going to be to remind them of who they are in Christ and to show them that there's no getting around this, that every one of them and every one of us ultimately has to make a choice between the world's wisdom on one hand and the power of the cross on the other hand. This is the heart of the matter in Corinth. The fundamental conflict is between the gospel of Jesus and the apparent power of human wisdom. So next, Paul deals with the recovery of unity. Look with me at verses 13 through 17. He says, As Christ divided, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may be able to say that you were baptized in my name. 
I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul is going to ask them a series of rhetorical questions. And out of that question, it's become very obvious what the unifying principle is that they need to recover in their church. So the first question he asks them, he says, guys, is Christ divided? If Paul were to ask us that question, what would we say? No, of course not. Here's the thing. Uh, In the Greek, it's possible to construct a question in such a way grammatically um, that you convey to the person you're asking that question to whether or not you want a positive or a negative response, whether you want a yes or a no. So we read this question, is Christ divided? And we think, of course not. They would hear this question, they would think, of course Christ is not divided. But Paul constructs the question in such a way as to demand uh, a positive response. Uh, Yes, Christ is divided. Paul's not saying that Christ is actually divided, but what he's saying to them in asking them this question, he's saying, yeah, of course Christ is not divided, but by your actions, what you're doing is that your, uh, the effect of your division, the effect of your factualism is that Christ is being sliced and diced and divided into parts. And what this does is it presents a picture of Christ's church as a divided house. So here's the underlying principle that Paul is expressing. He's saying, guys, Christ is one, and therefore the church, which is his body, must also be one. And a corollary to that is that Christ's body has only one head, not four heads, one head. Who is the, who is the head of Christ's body? Christ himself. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, just as there is one head and many members, there is only one vine and many branches. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on. He asks them in verse 13. He says, was Paul crucified for you? What do you think? What do we think? Of course not. But what's Paul doing as he asks them this question? What's he doing? He's holding up the very heart of the Christian message. And he is, ironically, using the very tools of rhetoric that they so vainly esteem. Okay, he's using a rhetorical question um, to point them to the absolutely unthinkable. Okay, so the Corinthians, they have fatally emphasized human wisdom and sophistication and prestige and reputation, powers of persuasion, skilled speaking. And in doing so, they have overlooked the centrality and the necessity of Christ's cross. And so Paul is saying this to them. He's saying, guys, only Christ is fit to accomplish our redemption. Paul was not fit to be crucified for your redemption. Apollos is not fit to be crucified for your redemption, nor Peter. Church, only Jesus, having lived perfectly, sinlessly, having kept all of God's law and therefore fulfilled all righteousness, only Jesus 
is fit to accomplish our redemption. In being perfectly righteous, only Jesus, the innocent one, was fit to be nailed to the cross as our substitute and as their substitute and to carry the capital punishment for our sin against a holy God. Only Jesus, being at once fully God and fully man, is fit and able to function as the one true mediator between God and men. God and men who have been estranged, put at enmity with one another on account of human sin. Being fully man, Jesus was fit to pay the penalty that God's justice requires sinful men to pay on account of their sin. Being fully God, Jesus alone was fit to endure the wrath of God against our sin as only God can endure. And with the wrath of God against our sin appeased, and with the penalty for our sin having been paid, we can be justified. We can be declared not guilty before God, not on the basis of our righteousness or goodness or works, but on the basis of a righteousness that is external to us, on the basis of a righteousness that is added to us by faith, by trust, by dependence, by reliance. The righteousness of Jesus is added to us. So he says, was Paul crucified for you? Come on, guys. Forget Paul. Forget Apollos. Forget Cephas. Give me Jesus. Amen? If you're here this morning, and if you don't know Christ, then I want to invite you to put your trust in Him today, now, to look to Him for the forgiveness of your sins, not to look to men or to methods, but to look to Jesus, to trust in His completed work on the cross, to receive righteousness from Him, not by looking to yourself, but by trusting in Him. Now finally, Paul exclaims in verse 13, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he brings up baptism here in this third question. Why does he ask this question? What is baptism? Well, look at the question. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Greek is literally, were you baptized into the name of Paul? And the answer is, of course not. None of us were. None of them were. Who were we baptized into? Jesus. We were baptized into the name of Jesus. Into. That literally means it implies Entrance into fellowship, entrance into allegiance. Christians have been baptized into the name of Jesus. We have entered into allegiance and fellowship with Jesus, not any other man. What is baptism? It's, it is our formal, public, outward sign, declaration before God, before um, our, our church family, before our immediate biological family, before the whole community, that we have left our whole identity behind, that we have forfeited all sense of other human identity. We have left it behind. We have entered into a new life in Christ, in a new life in the context of God's people in Christ. So evidently, the people in Corinth had also misunderstood baptism, and not only were they kind of dropping names and identifying with names, um, mistakenly, but they were probably also saying, well, I was also baptized by this person. You were baptized by that person. And Paul's saying, look, guys, it doesn't matter uh, who baptized you. What matters is who you've been baptized into. Now, I need to ask for your forgiveness really quick. You ready? I made a mistake on your outline. Will you forgive me? 
So on your notes, verses 14 through 16 should follow verse 13 under the current heading. Verse 17 should stand alone under the next heading. Um, but I'm going to skip over verses 14 through 16. And I want to ask us this question. What should we take away from Paul's interaction with the Corinthians? What should we take away from the points that he's making? I think we should take this away. Church, because Christ is one, we as, we as his body must also be one. We must protect the unity of our fellowship just as he was calling the Corinthian church to protect the unity, to refurbish the unity of their fellowship. And we need to recognize something, that our fellowship, the unity or lack thereof matters because it speaks something about the head. It speaks something about Christ. In our unity or lack thereof as a church, now and in the future, we either speak the truth about Christ or a lie, but either way, we're speaking. And so we must protect the unity of our fellowship. What is our public witness as this local body of believers? Because that witness will speak either the truth or the lie about Christ to a world and to a culture that is increasingly hostile and divided and needs the hope of a community of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who are reconciled and united. But second, because Christ made our salvation possible on the cross, because Christ did, we are always and forever united around His person and His work. Not any other man's person and not any other man's work. Now, I have the great privilege of speaking to you and ministering the word from the pulpit here at Hope Chapel, as does Zach, as does Andrew, as does sometimes Alan and some of our various um, elders. But we are not united around me. We're not united around Zach. We're not united around Alan or Andrew. We're united around the person and work of Christ. We can accidentally find unity in any number of things. We could find unity in uh, our personal preference for styles of preaching, uh, topical versus expository, styles of worship, um, secondary theological distinctives, you know, how we view baptism, how we view communion, the fact that we do communion together every week um, as a church. But only the person and work of Christ is sufficient to underwrite and to sustain our unity as a body of believers. And finally, church, because we have been baptized into the name of Christ, because we have fellowship with Him and in Him, we together are bound to no other person but He. I think these are the truths that we can and must cling to when anything threatens to creep in and undermine the unity of our fellowship. So Paul has presented in this section, a unifying principle. Christ is one, therefore the church which his, is his body must also be one. And this unifying principle is now going to lead to Paul's unifying priority. Look with me at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, Paul is saying that his highest calling, that his most pressing task is what? What is it? To preach the gospel. And this is the moment where Paul deals like the decisive death blow to the error that he's finding them in. He says, he says I, I, I was called to preach the gospel. Um, what is the gospel? What is it? 
Let's think about it. The gospel is God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom. It's not human wisdom. The power of the gospel is not rooted in eloquence or rhetoric or impressiveness. The power of the gospel is rooted in the simple message of the cross. The power of the gospel is found in what God accomplished at the cross through His Son. And when they or when we try to dress that message up in terms of human wisdom, if we put our confidence in a particularly a particular style or delivery of the gospel, if we put our confidence in our persuasiveness or in one sophistication, what do we do? Look at what Paul says. He says, we empty the cross of Christ of its power. You see, that kind of preaching and that kind of emphasis only draws people to a preacher, not to Christ. The preaching of the cross leads people to put their trust not in a human device, but in what God has accomplished in His Son. And any reliance on rhetoric or sophistication only leads men to trust in men. And that is the very opposite of what the preaching of the cross is meant to effect in souls. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning and ending in faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows where the power really is. You see, gospel conversion has nothing to do with sophistication of speech or with human wisdom. In fact, Paul is going to go on to say in the very next passage that we'll look at next week that God has purposely set the gospel against human wisdom. He's pitted them against each other. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? It is the power of God. And so when we try to dress the gospel up in human methods or human wisdom, we empty it of its power. And you see, those factions in the, the Corinthian church, they had forgotten their foundation. They had gotten their base calculations wrong. And everything that followed from that faulty foundation, from those miscalculated uh, base uh, calculations, everything that followed began to fray, began to come apart, beginning with their unity. Now, I can't see into the future. I can't predict or forecast or claim to know with any degree of certainty how we as a local church will be threatened in the years to come. I don't know what's going to creep in uh, to threaten our unity or the integrity uh, of our congregation. <clears throat> but I do know this. Wherever and whenever our unity begins to fray, Perhaps the first thing that we should evaluate is whether or not we have forgotten one or all of these three things. First, whether or not we have forgotten the work that God has accomplished for us in His Son, Jesus. Whether or not we have forgotten how desperately each of us needs that work. And third, whether or not we have forgotten the supremacy of Christ. And I could think of no better way of remembering these things 
of guarding our unity as a church going forward than for each one of us to take responsibility and to personally appropriate, to make our own, to, etern- to internalize these words that Paul writes uh, to Timothy in his first pastoral letter to Timothy, an old seasoned wise pastor approaching the finish line, finishing his service to the Lord, writing to a young pastor, an upstart just getting started who has a whole tenure ahead of him. And Paul writes these words to Timothy, and in these words, he rehearses God's wisdom in the gospel. Uh, He rehearses words that remind us of the condition from which we have each been saved. And finally, he he offers words that uh, supremely exalt the name of Jesus. So how do we protect our unity? I think that we appropriate these words for ourselves. Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. And as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which instructs us, which shapes us, which forms us which convicts us, which builds us up. Lord, we pray that our unity would be built up by the truth of the gospel in Paul's words to the Corinthians. We pray that we would be a brilliant display of Christ to the community that we're in. We pray that we would live harmoniously with one another, demonstrating uh, the, the, the mind of Christ. Jesus, as we remember you as we approach the communion table. Lord, we pray that our unity would be pleasing to you. We pray that you would be properly honored in our midst. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.